Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Visitors, just want to take a second and welcome you. My name is Clint, uh, one of the pastors of this church. We're glad you're here and have joined us on this Sunday morning uh, to worship the Lord Jesus, or perhaps you're not a Christian uh, and you're exploring the Christian faith and the things of God. Either way, whoever you are, however you got here, uh, whatever you came this morning, we welcome you and are glad that you have chosen to join with us this morning. Life in this fallen world is at once beautiful and broken. If you live very long at all, you're going to experience both beauty and brokenness. You're going to experience happiness and sadness. You're going to experience laughter and lament life and death. And so it's right for us to, quest, us to ask the question, where is it all headed? What's the culmination of it all? What's the point and purpose and the end game of all of this up and down, life and death? Will there be final justice in the end where the righteous be rewarded and the wicked punished? Is there a day of reckoning coming? Yes, friends, this morning we are here to study and learn that there is a day of reckoning coming. Jesus Christ concludes his fifth and final discourse by teaching about that day, that day of final judgment. Now, again, if you're a visitor, I just want to welcome you and say, hey, you're, you're stepping into uh, the middle of a series. Typically, what we do at King's Cross, though sometimes we have exceptions, but typically we preach right through books of the Bible kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through the easy passages and the difficult passages. Right now, we're coming to the end of Christ's life uh, according to the account of Matthew's gospel. In particular, this is the fifth and final discourse. Matthew's gospel is built around five discourses or teaching sections of Jesus, and this is the final discourse, and this discourse is in response to the, a question the disciples ask him about the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and also about the end of the age, the last day, the final judgment. It's a private conversation Christ is having with his disciples where he's talking to him, to them about the last things. We've spent the last three sermons studying Matthew 24 and 25 where Christ gives answers to these questions. And then today, again, we come to the final portion of that teaching where he talks about the final judgment. Now, I trust and know that it has been a heavy few weeks as we've thought about these things. It's never immediately comfortable to think about life and death, to immediately think about final judgment and standing before God and giving an account for our life, to think about heaven and hell and their reality. But it is fruitful and good for us, even as we've seen and considered. If we think rightly about the end, we can ask the question, how then should we live here and now? If we understand where this is all headed, where everything is going to culminate and end, that helps us then be informed, okay, what does it, what does it look like to be faithful here and now in light of there and then? This main point this morning, our compassionate king, that is Jesus, is coming back as a just judge to forever separate those who love him from those who don't. Our compassionate king is coming back as a just judge to forever separate those who love him from those who don't. Let's pray and ask for God's help even as we wade into these matters. Father, we come to you through Christ, our resurrected and sure to return Lord. And we come to you by the power of the Holy Spirit asking for your help. These are weighty matters. Eternity is a long time. Heaven and hell are weighty matters. Judgment is serious. And so we pray, would you appropriately help us be sober as we think about these matters? We also pray you would infuse our thoughts of eternity with great hope, great 
joy, great anticipation. And we pray even for those who are here this morning who do not believe in Christ. Would you transform them and save them even by grace through faith this morning? For those who do know you, where we think wrongly about eternal judgment and the final day, when we give an account, would you correct us? Where we're discouraged, will you encourage us? Where we are uninformed, will you inform us? Where we need to be changed, would you change us for your great glory in Jesus' name? Amen. The compassionate king will return as just judge. The compassionate king will return as just judge. The last two chapters, again, we've saw Christ teach how we're to respond and think about the end. He's taught us that we ought not to panic, but we should pay attention. That we should pay attention and understand that we should expect personal persecution. That we should expect suffering in light of the fact that the end is coming. That we should expect life in a broken world to be difficult and painful. He's given specific prophecies about the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70, just as he said it would. But he's also giving, given long-term prophecies about his second coming, which is still to come. He's taught us that no one's going to be surprised that he has come. It's going to be obvious. Everyone will know when Christ returns. But no one knows when he's going to return. <laughs> no one knows the day or hour. So nobody will be surprised that it is him who has returned, but no one knows when he's going to return. Therefore, as we saw last week, we ought to live with faith and faithfully, stewarding the life and opportunity that he's given to us in this life. Now he gets at the, the purpose of his return, namely final judgment. And the first thing I want you to notice is it will be glorious. Look again at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Now, as we've studied and walked through this account of the Lord Jesus and his life, his earthly life and ministry, we've observed a number of things. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is humble and compassionate in ways that kind of blows the human mind at first glance. This humility and this compassion that typified his life and, and earthly ministry is one that, that we've watched as, as we've studied through this gospel but we're seeing here one day this humble and compassionate one will return in his glory and all of the angels with him as a just judge. Everyone will see. Everyone will be present. Every human and every angel. And this is not the first time Christ has brought up the angels in, in, in Matthew's account of what's going to happen when he returns. I'm not going to read all of the times he's mentioned, but at least two other times. Once, Matthew 16, verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then in Matthew 24, 31, he will send out all his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they would gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It's going to be glorious when he returns. There's not one angel that will miss it. Not one human, not one nation, not one ethnicity that will not be present. He will sit on his glorious throne and the nations will gather around and he will separate people like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Sheep on the right, goats on the left, and his judgment will happen. Now before we get there and talk about this judgment, how do you know which side of this judgment line you will be upon? It's, it's right for us to ask the question and think about what kind of judge is worthy to sit on the ultimate bench judging all of humanity? Who's worthy of such a judgment? And again, let's just think a little bit about Christ and the uniqueness of his earthly life and ministry. 
What have we learned about him? We've learned he's full of grace and truth. That he's full of mercy and justice. That he is indeed the compassionate and humble king of kings and lord of lords. And yet he's the just God who will expose all wickedness. Consider and think with me just for a minute about his humble compassion. He was born humbly to a virgin in a manger. He came as a compassionate one to seek and save his people from their sins. He was humbly baptized by John the Baptist, though he had no sin of his own, but he said, I will be baptized because I'm doing this to identify with my people. I will live for them. I will die for them. I'll be buried for them, and I will rise for them. And so I'm being baptized even though he had no sin of his own because of his humility and his compassion for sinners. He called not elite religious leaders to be his disciples and followers, but fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, ordinary people. He used his divine power to demonstrate great compassion as he cleansed a leper, healed a paralyzed servant, healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and delivered those oppressed by the gathering demons. He graciously told the paralytic, hey, your sons are forgiven, or your sins are forgiven. By the way, pick up your mat and walk. <laughs> so forgives him of his sins, then raises him from his paralysis. He raised a little girl from the dead, healed a bleeding woman, two blind men, and a mute man. Matthew summarized Jesus' powerful mercy and compassion, talking about him going through all the cities and towns and villages and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. And then he says he, he saw the crowds, and when he saw them, he felt compassion because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Christ is uniquely compassionate and humble. And yet consider his just wrath. Just over in chapter 3, this humble, or 23, this humble and compassionate king terrifyingly pronounced woes on the religious leaders of Israel, calling them hypocrites, calling them whitewashed, empty tombs, saying, you look nice and clean and religious on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. He pronounced judgment upon them, warning them that they were making their converts twice as much children of hell as they were. He turned over tables in the temple and pronounced judgment on all of Israel. So Jesus was full of wrath for evil hypocrisy and yet compassion for sinners. This humble and compassionate king who's only three days away from his humiliating crucifixion says, I will return in great glory with all of the angels to sit on my glorious throne making the judgment as the one who is compassionate and humble and yet full of just wrath. He will return and it will be glorious. He came the first time full of compassion. Because people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But friends, be careful that you do not mistake his compassion as weakness by having a flippant attitude towards your sin. Paul warns of this in Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because you're hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The compassionate king will re return as the just judge. And he will return to draw the eternal line in the sand. And on that day, every single knee will bow and confess that he's Lord. Some will do so in worship and great joy. Others in rebellion with great fear. And friend... When he calls roll for that great day and that great meeting, you will be present. You will be there. Either bowing in great joy or bowing 
in terror with great fear. Paul makes this clear, Romans 14, second part of verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. On that day, you will belong to him or you won't. You will be separated as family or foe, recipient of grace or wrath, sheep or goat. So then the most important question we ought to be thinking and asking is, how do I know if I'm sheep or goat? If I receive grace or wrath? If I will bow in pleasure and joy or in fear underneath the justice of God. How do you know which side of the eternal line in the sand you will be standing on? Christ then goes into and says, this is what it's going to look like. And he describes both. And in this, our hearts, if we're here, we ought to be evaluating. We ask the Spirit, Spirit, show us which line am I on? Which side of this line am I on? First, notice the glorious blessing awaiting his sheep. The glorious blessing awaiting his sheep. Christ gives, he says on that day, there is going to be a breathtaking invitation. I mean, it's incredible. And if you just read it quickly and don't think about it and stop for a second and think, like, it is breathtaking what he's going to say to those who belong to him. Look at verse 34 again. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the compassionate king who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it's easy and light. My burden is light and easy. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You don't have to carry around the slave or the shame of sin and understand and stand before the wrath of God. You can carry my yoke. My yoke is easy. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Come to me, all who are weary. That same Christ, that same compassionate king, on that day will say to his beloved, come. Just like he invited you, come with all of your sin. He'll now say, come into all of the blessing of the Father. Oh, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have responded to that invitation to come to him with all of your sin, weary as you were, then you need to know on that day you will hear another invitation to come into the great blessing. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. You need not fear rejection. You need not wonder what God will say on that day. You, he will petition you to come near. He will call you to draw close. He will invite you into greater joy than you can imagine. How gracious God and King Jesus will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Question, what kind of people get an inheritance? Children, right? Children get an inheritance. What do, you, what do you have to do to qualify to earn an inheritance? You have to be born. <laughs> and you did nothing in choosing to be born. And it is also true, this inheritance, that he's saying, my father has prepared this inheritance for all of you who have come to me. What do you do to earn this inheritance? You're born again. You by grace, like, and you had nothing to say about the first birth. You got nothing to say about the second one. You were dead, you were not born, and then you were born again. By his grace, you woke up, and he says, no, no, no. On that day, on that day of judgment, he'll say, come. Those who are blessed, my father has been preparing of an eternal inheritance for you since before the foundation of the earth. Come. 
Jesus will say to his sheep on that great day, my father's been getting it ready since before the foundation of the earth. He's got an inheritance for you that he's been preparing since before you. Since before, like all of humanity, he's been getting this ready. This is what Paul starts in Ephesians chapter 1 and, and verse 3, and his mind is blown by the glory of thinking about God who's outside of time and space and who's set his grace and his mercy on his beloved. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 2, when he talks about the fact that we've been converted, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm trying to tell you this inheritance the Father has for you when you come through Christ on judgment day, this inheritance you're going to enjoy is going to take all eternity to enjoy. He made it like before time started. And there's so much joy of this inheritance he's going to have with you. It's going to take all eternity to enjoy it. And what did you do to earn it? Nothing. It's a free gift. Like a father blessing his children because of his affection for his children. Anticipating this moment gives us hope in difficult days. Anticipating this moment gives us hope when we have to leave loved ones behind, even because of our relationship with Christ. Matthew 19, verse 29. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Anticipating this moment is what gives us courage to press on. For our Lord says to us, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. And that kingdom is so much better than your little brain and my little brain could possibly imagine and think about. Fallen human imaginations aren't powerful enough to picture how wonderful that inheritance will be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But oh, don't we feel it the longing of it in our hearts, the longing for that city to come. God has been preparing it since eternity past. Friends, this is not some plan B. This is not some like the Lord looks down on Israel like, dang, y'all tripping. I didn't make a good plan. Let me come up with plan B. <laughs> no, no, no. From the foundation of the earth, this has been the plan through Christ Jesus the Lord. This has always been the plan. He's been preparing it since eternity past, and it will take all eternity future to enjoy so when this life gets hard and you're tempted to despair and question if God loves you, consider the fact that he's been preparing a place for you for all eternity. And on that day, the day of judgment, of reckoning, he will say to you, come, you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. One theologian says the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. See, God's love for his sheep is not something that started. It has always been. He doesn't have to start loving you. He's already always loved you before you even existed. He loved you. He created you out of his love for you in order to redeem you, in order to take you to this e eternal inheritance. His love is greater than you can comprehend. He's always loved us, even before we were created. 
But notice he grounds this invitation in the evidence of your transformation. So I'm not trying to give you bars, but it rhymes, so go with it, all right? But notice, so again, this invitation, come, like the Father's been preparing something for you, and then he, and then he grounds it in something. So there's the invitation. Now, we got to be real clear here. This is not salvation by works, but he's saying, when I save you, it works. Like, when I save you, transformation happens internally, and that produces a different kind of living. So when God saves you by his grace through faith alone and Christ alone and gives you his spirit, suddenly you find, I love God and I love God's people. I didn't used to love God. I didn't used to love his people. But when he saves me, he saved you. Now suddenly I love God and I love his people. And so Christ says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to ground the evidence of this salvation in the fact that it's been demonstrated in a transformed life. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So Jesus said, look, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked or poor. I was sick. I was imprisoned and you ministered to me. And he says, on that day, the righteous then, verse 37, will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did you, we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? So the righteous on judgment, they're a little bit confused, like, hold up. What'd you say we did? <laughs> like, I don't remember this interaction with you, Christ. I don't remember coming to visit you in prison. I don't remember seeing you poor and needy and, and giving you some clothes. I don't remember seeing you hungry and thirsty, giving you some food and drink. Well, like, I don't remember you being locked up for following God and us coming. Like, I don't, like what, are you, what are you talking about? In verse 40, the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So notice what Christ says here. He says, anytime you did any of these things to the least of these, my brothers, you were doing it to me. Now, I do want to point something out real clear that's in the text. He's not talking about the poor in general, the needy in general. He will talk about that. He does talk about that elsewhere. That's not what he's talking about right here. No, no, no. He says, the least of these, my brothers. So the disciples of Christ, the followers of Christ, who are weak and most needy, Jesus says, look, when you looked out for my people who were weak, who the world would have rejected, who the world would have ignored, who there was nothing, no reward for you to gain by helping them, when you did that, you were ministering to me. There's a special love for the saints, particularly for the saints in need, among the saints. Christ loved us in our need. He brought us into his new covenant family. And he brought us into this new covenant family that we might love one another with a unique love that demonstrates, indeed, as he said in John uh, 13, by this the world will know my, you're my disciples, by your love for one another. That you're the kind of people who the most needy get the most love, not pushed away. The social outcasts, the poor, those are the ones among you who get all the love from the church. Those are the ones you're willing to serve. By this the world will know my your disciples, by this love for one another. Christ is saying, when you loved and served the least of these followers of Christ, his disciples, those in the church, you were serving him. When you refused to see significance the way the world sees significance, and in so doing, loved and served those among us, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, you put on display love for Christ. Love for needy Christians is evidence of Christ's love in us. Love for needy Christians is evidence of Christ's love in us and through us. 
You could say it like this. Jesus takes how we relate to his needy followers personally. And again, just so you're clear, we're talking about followers of Christ. Matthew 10, 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus makes clear that the faith family is to be treated as his family. Matthew 12, 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. James, the brother of Jesus, who taught us that faith without works is dead, also said, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? James, Jesus' brother, says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The author of Hebrews connected this affection to eternal reward. Hebrews 10.34 For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The Apostle Paul explicitly commanded, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul commended Onesiphorus for loving him like this when he was imprisoned. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains." John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, beloved, is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. May I give a pastoral warning to young, zealous leaders among us. I love, I love your passion for the marginalized, for the poor, for the refugee, for the homeless out there. But if you seek to do so and all of that without serving the needy in here, in the faith family, your relational priorities are out of order. Does every widow of this church who wants a ride have one? Every young, zealous member of this church ought to care about the answer to that question. Are you giving to the church so that we might use benevolence funds to take care of single moms struggling to pay the bills month after month? Have you loved on and served the families that are adopting and fostering orphans in the church? Have you prayed for the sick and suffering brothers and sisters? Have you wept with those who weep among us? Have you walked with those in suffering? Have you welcomed brothers and sisters you don't know into your home? Jesus takes this personally, and he will commend you on that day for all the times the answer is yes. He says, I love to see you love on the needy among my people. I love to see this unique love among my people. Now, having said that, Even though he's talking about our love for the saints, for the church, he's also already taught that disciples are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to love our enemies and pray for them, right? Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Even think of the the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which teaches us moral responsibility based on moral proximity. That if you run to a suffering human being and you have relationship with a suffering human being like we see in the Good Samaritan, you have responsibility to do something uniquely. So we don't merely love the church. We don't merely love the saints and the suffering among us. No, no, no. We love the suffering, period. We do care about the poor. We do care about the orphan. We do care about the marginalized. We do care about those suffering. So we do care about those. But there's a unique responsibility in the house. We're Christians. We love God. We love people. We especially love our family. 
This is what it looks like to be a faithful follower of King Jesus. We show mercy and compassion to the marginalized, to the suffering in the world in hopes that they come to faith and come a part of the family. So it's not just that we go love and, and serve those who don't know Christ in, in their suffering. No, no, no. Well, like we do so in hopes that they become a part of the family. We don't stop loving them when they become a part of the family. No, no, there's even more love here. <laughs> so we love the world and we love the church. There's a unique love for the church. This is what Christ teaches. Galatians 6.10, Paul says it clearly. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. On that great day of judgment, Jesus will tell his people, you fed me, you clothed me, you cared for me, you welcomed me, you served me, you protected me. When out of your love for me, you did that to my needy followers. And again, Christians, this should not be shocking to us. Think about the whole story of redemptive history. We love God, we love people, and even Israel was exiled in Egypt. Christians were aliens and strangers. Jesus was crucified outside the camp. Christ himself is the essence of hospitality. Leaving the throne of heaven to come suffer and die for sinners, to take us back to that glorious moment where he says, enter into my father's got you an inheritance you'll never believe. So we show hospitality. We welcome people into our home, be they the family of God in Christ or even outsiders. We long to alleviate earthly suffering and eternal suffering, especially eternal suffering. And Christ will commend us on that day for that love we have for the needy among us. Now on to his just judgment of his enemies who get exactly what they want. The just, cure await, uh, the just, just curse awaiting his enemies. We'll talk about the cure in just a minute. But right now, the just curse awaiting his enemies. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the sheep will have a breathtaking invitation, but so too the goats will have a breathtaking rejection. To the sheep, he said, come. To the goats, he says, depart. To the sheep, he says, come to, to, to the blessings of my father. To the goat, he says, go, you cursed. Instead of inherit the kingdom prepared for you, go to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who reject Christ, the compassionate king, find him as their just judge, and he gives them exactly what they want away from him forever. Instead of a breathtaking kingdom prepared by a gracious and just God, they get eternal torment with the demons and Satan. That place where there is no pleasure and every day couldn't possibly be worse. Now, you might think this is too harsh. And that would be true if you minimize who God is. It's only too harsh if you bring God down to human level. Consider this. If you punch me in the face and you get charged for it, what is justice going to look like? Probably a misdemeanor at most. If you punch the president of the United States in the face, you're going to catch a felony. <laughs> if you punch another king in his land, you might catch the death penalty. Your sin against God is a punch in the holy, just, righteous, glorious, beautiful, perfect, true God of the universe, your creator. The offense of the punishment is connected to how holy the one who you offended is. Therefore, this punishment is worthy of eternal justice because you're talking about an eternally righteous and holy God. Not just Clint, not a president, not a king, but the king of kings and lord of lords. 
So if you minimize how holy he is, well, then, of course, you would say, this is harsh. But if you understand how holy he is, you would say, no, this is just. Those who would reject the God who made them in his image to worship him and then worship false gods and reject him deserve everything he's bringing. Sinning against an infinitely good and exceedingly gracious God is worthy of eternal punishment. And in this moment, he grounds this justice in the evidence just like he did with the sheep. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. On that day, they would be guilty of not loving God nor his people. Even if they were extremely religious like the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion. Again, remember the interaction Jesus had when he confronts Paul for persecuting Christians. Think about how Christ took it personally. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus takes it personally how you relate to his people. When you minister to his needy people, that's a commendation coming. Your heart's been transformed. You love Jesus. You love his people. That's evidence that he saved you. He, on judgment day, he will commend it. If you reject his people, if you cause his people to suffer, if like Saul, you're saying, I'm trying to kill them, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He so identifies with his people. You can't love God and not love the church. You can't serve God and not serve the church. It's his blood-bought bride. You can't love the groom and hate the bride. That makes no sense. Like if you hate my wife, you and I got problems. <laughs> so you can't, again, so I think we need to be careful. In a day where it's so popular to dunk on the church, like if you want the world's approval, talk bad about the church. Non-Christians will love you. You want God's approval? You need to think differently. Now, this doesn't mean we don't hold the church accountable. It doesn't mean we don't call out sin in the church. It doesn't mean we don't rebuke what's evil and wicked and whack. No, we do those things. But we need to be careful understanding when we talk about the people of God, we're talking about the people he purchased with his blood. His affection is on the church. Let us be careful how we treat and talk about people that Jesus died to save. Verse 44, they also will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then we answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. To reject needy followers of Christ is to reject Christ. To reject and ignore the hurting among us is to reject and ignore Christ among us. True relationship with Christ compels compassion for needy followers of Christ. Verse 46, and these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so again, on that day, please notice, even like the parable of the talents last week, this judgment is not pronounced because they were terrorists or murderers or drug dealers or thieves, but because they did not love the needy that Jesus loved. So conclude today with two very obvious but massive questions. Are you one of his sheep? Are you one of his sheep? If not, do you want to be? And what is required? How can you go from goat to sheep? When he draws that eternal line in the sand on judgment day and you give account, 
How do you know I'm on the sheep side and not the goat side? How can we become sheep rather than a goat? And that's the great glory and scandal of the gospel. John chapter 10. I think I put 14, Colin, so that's wrong. It's John 10. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Why, Jesus, how? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I received from my father. What does Christ teach us? So he says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd who came to live and give my life for goats that they might become sheep. So our good shepherd is the shepherd who says, no, 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 you've got no hope at judgment day unless I lay down my life and pay the punishment you deserve for being a goat. <laughs> you've rejected me. You've sinned against me. You've punched me in the face with your sin and I'm a holy and righteous God, but I'm voluntarily gonna lay down my life to suffer and die underneath the wrath of God for you and I'm gonna resurrect on the third day. I've got power to lay my life down. I got power to pick it back up and all who look to me, I'll take you back to the shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. The glory of the gospel is the shepherd dies for the sheep and reconciles them to the father that they might qualify for the inheritance they did not deserve. And this is the good news of the gospel. The very judge, again, Pastor Charlie talked about this a few weeks ago when he preached on the minor prophets. You don't run away from the judge, you run to him to be saved. So the one who's going to judge you is the one that you go pleading, save me. And he says, I'm a good shepherd. And I laid down my life for the sheep. And those who hear the good commendation on that day are those who trust in my blood to cleanse them, to wash them, and to bring them to this inheritance. The inheritance of Christ himself that he has earned. He chose to die for you. Like no one had to talk Christ into dying for you. So he, was, he, didn't, he didn't have to have his arm twisted. No, he said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. I'll leave the 99 to go get the one. He doesn't have to be compelled or talked into going after sinners. That's the whole point in his coming. He says, no, no, he didn't have to be talked into it. He died for you because he loves you. He's just that gracious and compassionate. He's just that good. Yeah, but what do I got to do? You can't do anything. You literally receive that good offer of his love as the shepherd, and you trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's what you got to do. But when you do that, suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, this kind of shepherd who would die for me, I love him. I love him. And whatever he loves, I love. Whatever he hates, I hate. This is how our heart is transformed. Then suddenly we're like, man, he loves needy people like me. Man, I want to love needy people like him. I want to go love and serve the least of these because he loved and served me. So non-Christian friend, enter th through the gate. Come to the good shepherd. And you're a sheep. 
believe on Christ and you're a sheep and you know on that day you need not fear. Here's what you're going to hear. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then your testimony will be, I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered. That's why I trust him. I wonder if some of you, when we first sang the song, was a little confused, like, wait a minute. I think there's a verse in the Bible that says no one seeks after God. You were right, Romans 3, 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So then how does the psalmist say in Psalm 34, which we were singing, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who looked in my radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his, all of his troubles. How? How is it no one seeks the Lord and the psalmist says, I sought the Lord? 1 John 3, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By, the, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We sought the Lord because he first sought us. And this is the story of Scripture. This is not just this side of the New Testament. No, no, no. He calls Abram a foreign man. No, no, I'm going to make a people through you. He calls David a little shepherd boy who cries out, Psalm 34, when he's running from his enemies. I sought the Lord and he answered. But even David himself was a sinner who messed up. But there was a, a greater David, a greater David to come, the Christ, who came to seek and save that which was lost. Because you could even think about it like this. How can I say I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered? Think about the story of the prodigal son. Father, basically, the, the summary is, Father, I want you dead. Give me my inheritance. I want your stuff more than you. Not interested in you. I want my money. Goes and parties his life away. Prostitutes, sinning, nonsense, wickedness, eating pig slop. And concludes, wait a minute. I know my father's character. I know to be a slave in his house is better than being a slave to my sin. I'll go home and I'll just plead. Maybe he'll let me be a slave in his house. Maybe I'll seek after him and he'll let me in. And he comes home and what does he find? But the father out on the front porch already searching after him. He comes home because the father is the kind of father he can trust and he knows I can come back to him. He thinks he can only come back as a slave. But this father's been searching for him. He's coming home because the kind of love and character the father has. The father's already, he sought after because the father was already seeking after him. I sought the Lord and he answered and he heard me. And if you look to Christ as your shepherd, you can cry out in your deepest and darkest moments. And your testimony will be, I, I sought the Lord, and he heard, and he answered. That's why I trust him. And that's true, because he's been seeking after you, because he's the kind of God who seeks after sinners. Sinner headed for the wrath of God, run to the good shepherd, whom you've sinned against, the one you've punched in the face, for he's the one who says, I will take the punishment you deserve. Cry out 
you poor man. Take refuge in him or reject him. And here, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Will you know Christ as compassionate shepherd or as just judge? Christian, if you're believing in Christ and he's changing you, no matter how painful this day, that glorious day is coming. And it's better than you know. And on that day, all of these days and his faithfulness to you will be worth it. Flee from sin, flee to him all the way until then. And then my, the second and last question is very simple. Are you loving the needy among you? So again, are you a sheep? Are you loving the needy among you? Who in your life can you show the love of Christ to without looking for a reward or a pat on the back? Not as a way to earn God's love, but because you freely received his love as a needy sinner. How can you give that love to other needy sinners? Not looking for anything in return, but just simply because Christ has changed your heart. Let me give you a few suggestions. First, look among the faith family for those in need and ask how you can help. Ask, how are the widows in the church and how might I help them? How are the families who are adopting or fostering, how might I serve them? Who are those in the church with very few or no friends that need to be welcomed in and, and maybe they're having a hard time connecting socially? Who are the single moms and dads and how might you come alongside and serve and help and encourage them? Who's struggling mentally or emotionally, spiritually? How can you come and say, how can I serve and help? Secondly, look outside the faith family and consider how you might invite those who are suffering in. What friends and family members do you need to take the risk of sharing the gospel with because you care about their eternity more than you care about how they feel about you? Who that you love are you afraid might be going to hell? Feel that. Don't ignore it. Listen, one of Satan's greatest tricks is to convince you to not think about hell and anybody you love going there. Because then you won't share the gospel with them. Who ought you to care about enough to take the risk to share the gospel? How might you gently bring up a conversation about Christ? What neighbors are suffering in your community? How might you minister to them and serve them and invite them to the love of Christ? You can pray for God to save them daily. Pray for God to give you wisdom and opportunity to talk to them and to encourage them. Invite them to corporate worship. Take them to lunch afterwards. Just tell them, I sought the Lord. He heard and he answered. And so I trust him. Share your testimony with them. Share the gospel with them. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. May we love by pointing people to the God who first loved us. Let's close in prayer.